Odysseus went to the glorious palace of Arsinius. There he stood, and his heart pondered much before he reached the threshold of bronze. For there was a gleam as of sun or moon over the high-roofed house of great-hearted Alcinius. Of bronze were the walls that stretched this way and that, from the threshold to the innermost chamber. Passage from Homer's The Odyssey Hello, my name's Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Episode 2, A Time of Bronze. In this episode, we are going to move into the Bronze Age of Greece, where we will look at when it began and what the Bronze Age was. It would be a time of rapid change, technologically, economically, politically and socially. New items were being created with metals, gradually replacing materials such as stone, wood and bone, which would see the tools and weapons become stronger and more durable. The metals that were needed, especially the new material to create bronze, would make trade even more vital. The wealth created by trade and control of this new metal would alter political power around a ruling family, while this newfound wealth would also create new social structures, resting on what was important to the societies. Memories of the Bronze Age in Greece existed and were told during the Archaic and Classical Ages, which were recounted in myth and epic poetry. We'll have a brief look at these tales as they were taken as historical fact by the ancient Greeks, and would also play a large part in the rediscovery of the Great Bronze Age civilizations closer to our time. The first civilization to be rediscovered was that of the Mycenaeans, by a German named Heinrich Schliemann on the Greek mainland. The other, which turned out to be the oldest of the two, was rediscovered by an English man known as Arthur Evans, who he coined the Minoans. We will finish up this episode looking at the stories of these two men and their rediscoveries. But first, let's start off by looking at the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age is a time period that is referred to when it was becoming common for tools and weapons to be made of the metal bronze. Bronze came to replace, for the most part, the other materials that were being used to create the implements of the past, which would have been made of wood, bone, stone, and metals such as copper, from when metallurgy was in its infancy. Most regions seem to have gone through a Bronze Age at some stage in their history, but most would differ when they would advance to this stage. The earliest area considered to have entered the Bronze Age was the Near East, around 3300 BC, with the Aegean regions not far behind. Evidence of items being made of bronze can be dated back to as far as 4500 BC, though they were not in widespread use to where we could consider these areas to have entered the Bronze Age this far back. From the evidence uncovered, it seems that areas in southeastern Europe and the Near East had developed metalworking in copper around the same time. These regions then gradually developed the technology of alloying it with tin to create bronze. The slight offset in time that the Bronze Age started in different regions might well come down to how the supply of tin was secured, as large deposits were only found in select areas in Europe and the Near East. Trade routes would have to be secured to ensure a steady flow of this all-important metal so civilizations could advance technologically. Now I have brought up two metals that were essential to making bronze. So let's have a look at how its creation came about. As we have seen, societies had been using copper for some time, and it's thought that this was one of the first metals to be used due to it naturally occurring in its near-pure form. To turn copper into bronze, tin or arsenic must be added, though the processes to do this were much more complicated than just producing the copper. Arsenic was first alloyed with copper, which produced a form of bronze, but once the tin started to be used, a much superior form of bronze was produced as well as reducing the hazards of toxic fumes from the heated arsenic. It's interesting to note 
that copper ore and tin are almost never found in the same locations, though there are some rare sites, such as in areas of Iran. It's not really known how producing bronze was first learnt, but it seems it would have been a long process of trial and error from societies that had been working with native metals such as gold, silver and copper for thousands of years. These metals are known as native as they are found in their unreactive state, and in most cases don't need to be extracted from other metals. People would have been manipulating these metals into different forms by heating, casting and cooling. They would have learnt that different metals would require different intensities of heat to be melted. Further to this, the process of smelting, which is heating ore to extract metal from it, would have been learnt, as copper, although a native metal, did have other material mixed in with it in small quantities. So the copper ore would have been heated to remove the copper from the rest of the material. Also, it is believed that smelting may have been first learnt from residue from glazes on pottery after they had been in a kiln, since these operated at high temperatures. Potters would have experimented with different materials for glazing, that would have come from rocks and ore, and certain results would have emerged with different materials. So with these processes having been known for thousands of years, it would be certain that people would have experimented with many different types of ore and mixed different materials together. Though I have also come across a theory that perhaps in places of Iran where copper ore and tin ore both occur, rocks of both were placed around campfires to where metals from both extracted from the ore and mixed together producing a crude form of bronze. Granted, the fire they were around would have had to have produced some tremendous heat, although tin melts at around 232 degrees Celsius, which is 450 degrees Fahrenheit, and copper melts at just over 1,000 degrees Celsius, just under 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So whatever the path was that came to the discovery of bronze, whether it was due to certain thousands of years of experimentation, or was discovered by chance, Greece was now entering an age of bronze where the new metal was much stronger than the copper they had been using previously and would have a huge impact on their development. With bronze now the metal of choice, a great advance in technology took place. Tools were now much stronger and would reduce the labour required to complete the tasks of old. The tools would no longer need repair or replacement as often, which would lead to greater output in productivity. In warfare this advanced the arms race, since the weapons could be constructed of a much stronger bronze which was not as soft or as brittle as the older materials used, therefore giving an army or a warrior on the battlefield an edge over an opponent with an inferior weapon. The already developed trade routes of food, pottery and native metals in Greece also strengthened over land and via the sea, as now a quite rare form of metal was necessary and there were no known tin deposits in Greece and most were spread out thinly in far-off regions. The Greeks may have had to make new trade contacts while also strengthening old ones, which would have seen an increase in goods travelling these routes. All of this new wealth generated by trade and labour output then may well have led to the old tribal or clan chiefs gaining more power and control over the village resources as a centralised figure was needed to manage these aspects as they became more complex. This would have then led to already important figures being elevated to the status of a king. This in turn would have also made diplomacy within Greece even more complex and important. The era also saw an increase in social status of the warrior class, perhaps due to the more frequent disputes that could now possibly take place over trade, encroachment on land and disrespect shown to a ruling family. This would have made the warrior class much more valuable to its city and these warriors could now show off their status with magnificent bronze armour and weapons. The period of history dealing with the Greek Bronze Age is devoid of any contemporary account, with the first Greek historian being Herodotus 
who wrote in the 5th century BC, some thousand years after the height of the Bronze Age. So how are we aware of what was taking place back in the Bronze Age? Archaeologists have uncovered many tablets from this period, but they have been mostly of administrative usage. The tales from the Greeks themselves recounting the Bronze Age date from the Archaic period and into the Classical period. These accounts range from epic poetry, mythology, biographies to historical narrative. Now when talking about poetry, the most popular works are by the poet Homer. Homer is supposed to have performed his poems somewhere around 800 to 700 BC. When I say performing, we have to keep in mind that most poetry or storytelling was done orally, as the majority of people were non-literate in these times. The two poems he is credited with are the Iliad and the Odyssey, though there has been some debate over whether the same poet composed both, but most general readers accept Homer as the author. The Iliad deals with ten days within the Trojan War, which traditionally has been thought to have taken place from 1194 to 1184 BC. The poem rests in the themes of anger, revenge and glory, told through the war between the Greeks and the Trojans. The main Greek characters have many quarrels between themselves while the gods interfere in mortal matters while also having their own quarrels. The Odyssey deals with one of the characters from the Iliad, Odysseus, who was attempting to return home after being away at the Trojan War for ten years. His Odyssey takes him another ten years to return, but along the way he and his men encounter many strange lands, people and creatures. Although this poem doesn't deal with a historical event, it is a story that can be dated to taking place in the Bronze Age, due to Odysseus' return from the war. Although these stories are set in the Bronze Age and dealing with events, we also need to keep in mind they are written as lessons in how one should or should not conduct themselves. Storytelling in pre-literate times was the most effective way of sharing and knowing of cultural standards. What is hard to tell is how much of Homer's time has influenced the poem's message. The oldest mythological accounts that survive today come to us through Hesiod, who is supposed to have lived around the same time as Homer. Other writers have also written about ancient myths, with some just after Hesiod and all the way to Roman times. These myths have been accounted mainly through prose, poetry and biographies. Although a large part of the mythological accounts deal with the creation of the universe, the gods and nature, we are for now looking at the stories that deal with the accounts dating to what appears to be in the Bronze Age. I don't plan on going into much detail on all the different myths in this series, but just briefly outline who the gods were and what the stories were about when we mention them. Accounts of the myths can be read from ancient poets such as Hesiod, Ovid and Apollodorus, as well as a great many other ancient authors. We also have a great many modern accounts that are available to us today. For an entertaining and easy to grasp account of the myths, I would highly recommend Stephen Fry's books, Mythos and Heroes, which are also found in audiobook format. Most of the accounts in myth that we will see as rooted in the Bronze Age period deal mostly with heroes, men who have done great deeds that have been passed down through generations as traditional tales. These stories, although focusing on events and figures, include fanciful elements such as the gods and creatures, but they are often conveying deeper moral and ethical messages through archetypes. As we have said, in a society before literacy was common, this was the best way to spread these messages. Some of the stories attributed to events or people in the Bronze Age are Jason and the Argonauts and the quest for the Golden Fleece, Perseus and his encounter with the Gorgon Medusa, Theseus and the tale of the Minotaur in the Labyrinth, and the Twelve Labours of Heracles. Also in the vast array of myths, we get accounts of family trees, 
that are supposed to have dated back to the Bronze Age times. These family trees were often used in classical times to describe one's heritage. We also find ancient historians such as Herodotus and Thucydides referring to figures or events that would date back to the Bronze Age. They don't seem to focus seriously on the fanciful elements so much, but the actual figures and events that to most Greeks are seen as historical. Herodotus tends to dabble in the traditional tales more often, while Thucydides is far more critical when dealing with these traditional stories. The accounts told by the archaic and classical writers were passed down generation after generation with faint memories of great deeds and events. Woven into these stories were moral and ethical lessons with the warnings, dangers and fate often seen through the strange creatures and gods. For thousands of years these stories served to give a slight snapshot of what the Bronze Age in Greece may have been like. People used their imagination through listening and reading these tales often wondering if they were completely made up or if they were ever based in historical reality. Did Greece really have a civilised culture during the Bronze Age? In the late 1800s and beginning of the 1900s of our time, two men would answer this question with something other than stories but actual tangible evidence, and that had been buried for around 3,000 years, and giving some of these stories some context and even reinforcing the ideas presented through myth. These two civilizations would be two of the earliest to emerge in Europe that we know of. The oldest, the Minoans on Crete, and the Mycenaeans on mainland Greece. We will start with a rediscovery of the Mycenaeans, as they would be the first to be given a historical context. Many people had known of and visited the ruins of Mycenae, which is situated in the Peloponnese, with many classical Greek writers describing what they had seen. The historian Thucydides was not too impressed with what he saw, but other writers talked about the Cyclopean walls, as it was thought that the stone blocks used to build them could have only been lifted by the Cyclops. Pausanias, who wrote a sort of travel guide of Greece in the 2nd century AD, also described the site. From around the 1500s and the resurgent interest in the classical periods, more people started visiting Mycenae, as well as other sites. And once into the 19th century, many accounts and sketches were being produced about what travellers had seen at Mycenae. Many of the ancient Greeks accepted the wealth and power of the ancient town of Mycenae and its king Agamemnon to be true historical fact, but during their time there was no obvious sign to support this view. Later in history, people would come to view the stories found in the Iliad about Troy and the Greek figures such as Agamemnon and the powerful cities such as Mycenae to be made up, but the discovery made by a German named Heinrich Schliemann would breathe new life into the ancient tales told about the Bronze Age Greeks for thousands of years. Schliemann was born in Germany in January of 1822. His father was a Lutheran minister and is described as being poor, while his mother died in 1831 when he was only nine years old. During his childhood, his father had read both the Iliad and the Odyssey to him, which piqued his interest in history while attending the grammar school his father was able to pay for him to attend. Schliemann was forced to change schools after his father was accused of embezzling church funds then forced to leave school after his father could no longer pay the tuition. Heinrich was able to get a job as an apprentice grocer at the age of 14, where he worked for five years until he left due to sustaining an injury after lifting heavy barrels. He then travelled to Hamburg where he was able to gain employment as a cabin boy aboard a steamer that was headed to Venezuela. The steamer ran aground in a gale and never made it to its destination. Schliemann was washed up with the other survivors on the shores of the Netherlands where he would work in a number of roles over the years. Eventually, Heinrich got a job with an import-export firm as a general agent to Russia. 
This would be the beginning of him becoming a successful and wealthy businessman. He would later start a bank dealing with gold dust in California, selling it in 1852. He got into the indigo business, made a lot of money as a military contractor during the Crimean War, and was able to manipulate the market on items such as saltpeat, sulfur, and lead before selling them to the Russian government. In 1852, Schliemann married in Russia and had a son and two daughters. The marriage was strained from the start, and his constant travels away from Russia didn't help matters. In 1869, and after a number of divorce threats, he ended up obtaining a divorce from his first wife after she refused to relocate from Russia. Schliemann's first visit to Greece occurred just before his first marriage ended, and had visited Odysseus' home island of Ithaca, Mycenae and the plains of Troy over the Dardanelles. This visit to these ancient sites was only brief, but had whetted his appetite and had him planning his next visit. He was now a wealthy man and could afford to retire, and now he contemplated pursuing his lifelong passion of digging up the past, though one thing was still missing, a companion to join him in his enthusiasm for the past. Schliemann turned to an old friend who had taught him Greek back in Russia. By the end of his life, Heinrich would be able to speak 16 different languages. His friend was now living in Athens, so he wrote to him for help in trying to find a suitable wife, as well as posting in the local newspapers. After some time, Schliemann received a reply from his old friend, with a photo enclosed of a young Greek woman named Sophia, who was 30 years his junior. After meeting her, he was even more enamoured with Sophia, and had learnt that she had a thirst for knowledge and a willingness to learn, which Heinrich thought essential for their marriage to work. Heinrich and Sophia were married in October of 1869, and would go on to have a daughter and a son. Schliemann returned to the Dardanelles in Turkey to start work on uncovering Troy. He was encouraged to search a site known as Hisarlik by a man named Frank Calvert, whose family owned the site. Schliemann in 1871 had found the ancient remains of a city, but found that there were more ancient city remains under each successive city. Believing that Homer's Troy would be the oldest layer, he dug through each other layer until he reached what he would claim to be Troy of the Trojan War. Calvert and Schliemann would end up falling out over the methods used by Heinrich, in a time where archaeology was not yet a professional field. Though the two would work together again after Schliemann had published his findings. The Turkish government revoked their permit to dig after learning of their discoveries, so the pair smuggled back to Athens the artefacts and the treasures, fearing that the corrupt officials would get their hands on them. Later on, it was recognised that there were nine cities of Troy that had been built on top of one another with a new one being built on top of the previous destroyed city. Each Troy would be assigned a number, with the lower number, the earlier the Troy. Schliemann had identified Troy II to be the Troy of Homer's Iliad, but more recent dating would suggest this Troy was some thousand years too early. It is now mostly accepted that Troy VII is the best fit to be the Troy of the Iliad, as its dating fits when the Trojan War was supposed to have taken place, and a large amount of evidence at that level suggests of destruction through war. In 1876, Schliemann began digging on the Greek mainland at Mycenae. As we have said before, the ruins of Mycenae had been visible for thousands of years, but its importance as a power had not been recognised yet. Schliemann was convinced of its importance, as whenever Homer spoke of Mycenae, the words golden and opulent were often used to describe it. People who had dug at Mycenae before had excavated outside of the ancient city walls, in search of the grave of the Homeric Agamemnon. Schliemann had put up a lot more faith in the Homeric tales, and used them to guide where he would dig. When he applied for permission from the Greek authorities to dig, the archaeological society, who he had applied through, granted permission. The society had been jealous of Schliemann, but believed he had chosen to dig in a barren area, 
that would return no results. Schliemann believed that the correct place to search for Agamemnon's grave would be within the city walls. A passage found in Pisanius guided Schliemann's decision. Clytemnestra and Aegistus were buried a little further from the wall. They were not fit to lie inside, where Agamemnon and his men murdered with him are laying. This passage refers to the tale told about Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, and being murdered upon his return from the Trojan War after ten years. Clytemnestra's wife was part of the conspiracy, still hurting from Agamemnon's decision to sacrifice their daughter for favourable winds so the Greek army could set sail for Troy to begin the war. Agamemnon would then be avenged by the pair's son, Orestes, when he grew up. The others who had dug and the Greek archaeological society had thought that Pausanias could not have meant the walls that remain today as they only enclose a small area. They believed another wall surrounded the outer areas that was smaller and no longer exists today. This is what had led to all previous attempts to be focused outside of the ruins itself. Schliemann began digging near what's known as the Lion's Gate, which was originally found and restored by an earlier archaeologist. Not long after digging, he uncovered a stone circle, and within this circle he discovered five graves, while a sixth was discovered by Schliemann's Greek chaperone. These graves contained a total of 19 bodies, nine men, eight women, and two children. Many of the men were laid out in oppressive armour and also had golden death masks. The women had many gold ornaments and golden crowns, while the children found were completely wrapped in sheet gold. Schliemann removed one of the golden death masks and kissed it, which revealed a skull with the face still somewhat preserved. Heinrich wrote a letter to the king of Greece, which he told him, I have gazed on the face of Agamemnon. The first evidence had now been uncovered of a Bronze Age Greek civilization that would go on to be known as the Mycenaeans, named after the city of Mycenae. Later on, after much more work that had been done by other archaeologists, it would be confirmed that the remains Schliemann had uncovered were not from the traditional time given for a historical Agamemnon figure to have existed, but came from a period some 200 years earlier. Schliemann would go on to continue his work at Mycenae and other areas in Greece. He would also travel back to Troy and continue excavation. He had also planned to dig at Knossos in Crete, but died in 1890 before he could secure permission to explore there. What lay at Knossos would be left for another man to rediscover. In 1900, a man by the name of Sir Arthur Evans secured a site five kilometres inland from the northern Crete coastline near the city of Heraklion. Here Evans would resurrect the oldest civilization of Europe that had thrived during the Bronze Age. Evans was born in 1851 in England, where he was surrounded with a strong scholarly family tradition. Evans' father was a geologist with a keen interest in antiquities and collecting. Evans and his two brothers grew up involved in their father's interests and would accompany him on field excursions where Evans would eventually inherit his father's obsessions. As Evans grew into a young man, his field trips with his father would pave the way for arduous journeys on foot and horseback he would take into remote parts of Eastern Europe. Evan became very fond of these regions and would soon develop a passion for the Balkans. Between these adventures, Evans would return home to complete his studies to where he then sought to pursue an academic career. Though his unpopular opinions may have hampered his efforts with the conservative elements in the academic world. Evans would end up back in the Balkans, reporting back on events taking place there. In 1878, Evans married Margaret Freeman and moved to Croatia, where he still worked as a correspondent, but started shifting his focus to the history of the Southern Slav people. 
he would excavate burial grounds and purchase Greek and Roman coins in amongst his studies. Though the newly made home he had created for himself and his wife would not last, Margaret was starting to have health problems, and an insurrection broke out against Austria, who had control over this region. Evans reported on events that were sent back to England, though he made no secret of his pleasure in every Austrian reverse. This would turn the spotlight onto Evans, who would be eventually tried and expelled with his wife in 1881. Evans returned to England where he pursued a professorship in archaeology, but was looked over as he was known to have a much more open mind to the study than the established scholars. In 1883, he set off for Greece where he met Heinrich Schliemann, who had uncovered some artefacts on Greek soil. Evans was able to obtain the artefacts that Schliemann had found and was convinced they were from a much older civilization than what Schliemann had originally thought. During Evans's time in Greece, after he had sifted through Schliemann's collection, he spent some time looking through the local antiquity dealers in Athens, where he had found some small seal stones. These stones had a type of hieroglyphic writing on them that was not Egyptian but appeared to represent writing. Evans asked the dealer where these stones were obtained, to where the dealer answered Crete. Archaeologists had been doing some digging on Crete already, with others being refused by the Turkish authorities, as Crete was under Ottoman rule at the time. In 1894, Evans arrived in Crete and felt right at home and was very impressed with the landscapes and history. Around the rest of the island, Evans saw signs of what he believed to be a forgotten flourishing civilization. Eventually, he made his way to Knossos, where Schliemann had also travelled to attempt to dig, but failed in acquiring permission. Evans, armed with care, patience and money, was able to obtain a share to a site, which for the moment only allowed him to refuse others to dig there. While on Crete, Evans found more examples of the seal stones. They were extremely popular with Cretan women, who called them milk stones, as they believed that they helped produce milk for the mothers that wore them. In 1897, civil war broke out on Crete, and Evans went back to England. Crete would become independent from Turkish rule. Evans was now able to negotiate with the new Cretan administration and give him permission to dig. Evans returned back to Crete in 1899 and began digging at once, and almost immediately a great complex or labyrinth was revealed with the architecture and art like nothing seen before. Evans had brought back from time a forgotten civilization which he was to call Minoan. So why did Arthur Evans call this civilization Minoan? Well, the word comes from the name Minos, who was a mythical king who ruled Crete, referred to in ancient works. It would appear that the myths had been the only sources to have given us the idea that a great civilization existed on Crete in the Bronze Age before Evans's discoveries gave us a more tangible reality. For thousands of years, people were left with vague memories of a great civilization through the mythical stories involving the Minotaur in the labyrinth and Icarus ignoring his father Daedalus's advice and flying too high to the sun. Both of these stories took place in Crete and feature Minos as the king. Also, the poet Homer makes reference to Crete and a king named Minos in his epic poem, The Odyssey. We also find references to Minos in the works of early historians, such as Herodotus and Thucydides, who were writing in the 5th century BC. Minos may have been a real king of Crete, though it has also been suggested Minos may have been the term to describe a ruler, but whatever the truth is, we have no idea what the Minoans called themselves, and we are left to identify them through their famous mythological king. This brings us to the close of this episode, and a brief introduction to the Bronze Age. As you can see, most of the information that we've had to work with is very general in nature, 
due to the lack of written sources. We are left to interpret the archaeological evidence that has been uncovered and form the best conclusion based on very limited information. Though the stories that have been told by the ancient Greeks that tell of times in the Bronze Age have helped bring some life to the period and have also helped some such as Schliemann and Evans rediscover the lost past. The next couple of episodes we will continue with the Bronze Age but we'll be looking at it through the lens of the two civilizations that dominated the period in what would become the Greek world. We will start with the Minoans who centered on the island of Crete and then spread their influence into the Aegean. Then we will look at the Mycenaeans centered on the Greek mainland who would supplant the Minoan civilization in the region before then turning our focus to the great collapse of the Bronze Age and loss of civilization that followed only to re-emerge from legend in the last hundred years or so. So until next time, thank you for your support, and I hope to see you next time for episode 3, The Minoans. <laughs>